0: Thanks, Michaela. What's up, everybody? Good to see you. Um, In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uses this really beautiful image, a metaphor, to describe the Christian community. And he talks about the Christian community as being a group of people knit together in love knit together in love, as if our individual lives were so many pieces of thread that in the gospel, uh, God weaves together by his mercy and grace, that he weaves us into some beautiful tapestry or comfy sweater or something. Uh, That together displays his artistry and his heart and his love in a way that our individual lives, no matter how beautiful or just or good, could do on their own. Knit together in love. I think it's a wonderful way to think about the nature of community. A thread by itself is pretty unimpressive and frail. But knit together, it can make something precious and strong and useful. And so a woven rug is much more compelling than a single piece of thread. A comfy knit sweater is awesome. And we're just waiting to wear a comfy knit for it to get cool enough that, my goodness, we would need to wear our comfy knits Uh, But a single thread cannot keep a person warm. In the same way, it's when a group of people come together to live out the Jesus life that the kingdom of God is present in the world. Uh, We all know what it's like to have that, that scarf or that sweater that we really love and we all know what it's like when that woven or knit garment gets caught on the nail or begins to fray at the ends and and gets to become loose and you try to fix it but you pull the thread in the long wrong way and it begins to unravel that can happen to christian communities too And that's what the Christian community that Paul was writing to was like. It used to be this group of Jews and Gentiles whose lives were knit together in love, tightly knit together, but now they find themselves fraying at the ends. Their Jesus life together was beginning to unravel. And the book of Romans is really Paul's attempt to try to hold the thing together. And at the heart of it, we get Romans chapter 12, and all of these beautiful commands. Here, Paul, at his most practical, reminding this divided community that they need one another. And what the together life in God is like, And what the together life in God requires, both as they relate to one another on the inside and as they relate to a growing hostility in the outside world. And it's a really beautiful description of love. You heard it. It's the kind of passage where you read it and you think, man, if we could just get this down we would be cooking with gas. Um, We're going to, I hope you like it, because we're going to spend four months here. Um, And there's a couple reasons why I think it's worthy of that amount of time in this portion of Scripture. Uh, One is, like Michaela said, in the next few weeks, we're going to Launch our small groups, which is the primary vehicle at Grace for doing life together. It's where the together life gets lived here. And so this is a significant time for us to remind ourselves of the importance of Christian community and its purpose in our life and in our mission. But secondly, I think that we are experiencing our community fraying at the ends We feel, I feel, like our church has been caught on a couple nails. One being the past two election cycles. And we have very conservative people in our church. And we have very progressive people in our church. And over the last few years, because of everything going on in the world... It's just honestly been harder for people to get along and to like one another. Add a pandemic into that, and you don't necessarily have the conditions for a thriving community. I mean, you go through a—think about this—you go through a season of online church— followed by a summer where, if we're all honest, we all phone it in for a while as it relates to church attendance, and then we come back to a mask mandate, and we look around, and there's people we haven't seen for a while, we don't know who's in or who's out, or what happened to who or what, and it just feels like we're picking up the pieces of our broken community. And our once tight-knit church feels fragile, like it might be fraying at the ends. Well, we're called to be a community that's knit together in love. And lucky for us, God is a great artist. And my prayer is that He uses Romans chapter 12, as His needle or His loom that will slowly bind our lives back together in love. So that's where we're going to be. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Romans chapter 12. And uh, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive this instruction, and that over uh, the coming months, you would use it to bind us together in love, to reconcile relationships, to, to that we would come out feeling strong and united in fellowship, knowing what it means to serve one another, to forgive one another, to forbear with one another, to weep with one another, to rejoice with one another by your Spirit. And that ultimately, every week, we'd be drawn back to you, Lord, to see how you've loved us in these ways, because you've done that perfectly. And so be with us by your spirit this morning. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name, amen. I want to do two things. I want to give you the background to the, the, to the book of Romans, because I think it's going to make this chapter pop for us when we hear about it, and then I'm going to go through the whole thing slowly no i'm going to go through, through the whole thing quickly verse by verse just to give us an overview of where we're going and with a word of application and i'm going to try to do it quickly are you ready let's rock and roll so when you get to romans 12 man we've got coffee cups with this stuff on it i appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercy of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice What I want to argue is that these words, though we often think of them as individuals, this this is an individual call for us to offer our individual life to God, to to worship Him wholeheartedly. That's a great way to read this, I just don't think that's how Paul intended it. And so what I want to argue is that these words were written together to bind um, a broken community back into fellowship and love that there was a community of house churches in Rome in deep conflict for one another. And the danger here is that they would remain separated. These tribal units would never come together again and provide a unified sacrifice and offering to God, which is their reconciled lives together. So to understand all that, you need to know a little bit about the history of the Roman church. So the first converts in Rome were Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And there, the Holy Spirit fell, and Peter Peter preached a banger of a sermon. It was fire. So much so that 3,000 people came to faith. And those 3,000 people who have traveled there from all over the Greek and Roman world went back to their cities, and that included these people from Rome, and there these Jewish converts, started these little house churches these of a, this Jesus movement that they were now a part of. And these little house churches would have been a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. But the Jews would, because of their knowledge of the scriptures, uh, because they were the first ones to be converted, they would, have, they would have taken the lead both in planting these churches and they would have been the leadership in the church which meant that these churches took on a Jewish flavor, which means that Gentiles who were attending those churches would have been expected to be Torah observant. They would have been expected to to practice kosher, to keep the Sabbath. Uh, But something happened in 49 AD, so about 20 years after these churches got started, that really upset the balance of power within these little communities. And we learn from Acts 18 and from outside Roman sources that in 49 AD, in response to an act of civil disobedience um, by Jews in Rome, that the emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from the city of Rome. So the Jews at this time, again, were the leaders within these church communities. They were the ones with the cultural power. But when these Jewish brothers and sisters were forcibly deported from Rome, the Gentiles were left to go at it alone, to form new leadership, and along with it, new ways of doing things. Well, Emperor Claudius dies in 54 AD, and his edict dies with him, and it's no longer enforced. And at some point, these Jewish leaders begin to trickle back into Rome and to reintegrate with the church, a church that in their absence has found different ways of doing things. They didn't necessarily practice the Sabbath anymore. They they ate and drank differently. Not only did they not keep kosher, they ate food sacrificed to idols that they bought in the Roman markets. The Jews wanted things to go back the way they used to be. The Gentiles had evolved. Two groups of people following the same Jesus. But how that was going to play itself out in worship and in the day-to-day realities of life. How one was going to interact with Roman culture. Even the food that someone was going to eat all of these were major differences. And those differences began to seem insurmountable. So that the church became dangerously close to disbanding. They started to form these little tribal units. And so if you read the last chapter of Romans, what you get is all of these greetings to different house churches. And what you notice is that all of the Jews are together. All of the Gentile names all together. All of the Greek names are together they've segregated themselves out based on their preferences culturally but how if they remained separate could the church in rome display the manifold wisdom of god and god's ability to reconcile peoples and to bring people together and just the power of the gospel to create a community of love and so paul writes the book of romans And from beginning to end, it's about binding these different groups of people together. That's the background. Now with that there, I want to read through the text, verse by verse. If you have it open, that might be helpful. And we'll see if that background makes this text pop. Are you ready? Let's go through it. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you. So notice the pastoral call. This is a strong appeal. Therefore, that's the first word in Greek. So in light of everything I've said before, Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. So J.P. Phillips translates this, with eyes awake to the mercies of God. And and Paul is really summarizing the last 11 chapters when he says this in the book of Romans. It's all been about God's mercy. Whatever has happened to you, Jews and Gentiles, there's one word for it, mercy. Eyes awake to the mercy of God. And then it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And here we normally read this as offering our individual bodies to God. But notice the grammar. It's not offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. It's offer your bodies, plural, as one single living sacrifice to God. More likely what Paul is saying is, hey, Greek and Roman churches offer these individual house churches. These tribal factions that has formed with God's reconciling love come together again so that your community can be one single living sacrifice to God. And then he says that it would be holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, that the sacrifice that pleases God is the reconciliation of peoples. The sacrifice of God that He loves is when you take your individual lives or your individual tribal units and you bring them under His Lordship. You reconcile together and form a single, unified, corporate expression of His love. That's what pleases God. And isn't that what Jesus says? He says, if you come to the altar to offer a sacrifice... And you know you have one brother or sister who you have something against. Leave your gift. Go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift because because it's the reconciliation that's the fragrant offering to the Lord. It's amazing, and I understand that as a parent. You know, my kids get me gifts all the time. And they can can be on their best behavior individually. And if they're not getting along with one another, my heart is heavy. But when my kids care for one another and love one another, when I see that happening, it just makes me so happy. And that makes God happy when his church is like that. And so he says don't be conformed to this world and that word conformed is to be pressed into a mold don't be pressed into the world's mold don't be so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without thinking don't be don't fit into the world's buckets in other words don't don't let Don't live by a principle of conservatism or progressivism or nationalism or America or right or left. Don't let your choice of cable news direct how you think about things and dictate who you get along with. Don't let your choice of cable news dictate how you think about things or who you get along with. Rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind in the gospel, so that by testing, y'all may discern what the will of God is. His good, acceptable, and perfect will. And that you there, so by testing, you may discern. It's a Texas y'all, it's y'all together living life. Together, you're you're testing out that this is true and you come and you realize, oh, this is God's will for us to come together. You test it and you find that it's true, that we're called to be a family not built around blood and soil or political ideology or tribalism or even our ethnic identity, but a community that that is committed simply to doing the Lord's will together. It's what Jesus said was the basis of his family. You remember? He's inside having a meal with his disciples and his mom and, and uh, his, his family is on the outside and they're asking him to come out. And he says, no, my family is right here because my family are the ones, my brothers and sisters are the ones who do the will of God, who by testing together discern what God's will is. So to summarize the first two verses, <laughs> he is saying, present your collective bodies as a single sacrifice, holy and distinct and pleasing to God to show an alternative to the divisive spirit of the world. Continually renew your mind in order to do this. How do you do that? Well, luckily there's a lot more text. Verse 3 For by the grace given to me, it's all grace, I say to every one of you, whatever is about to come next, there's no exception to the rule. Y'all need to hear this, me too, not to think of oneself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God God has a sign. Don't think of yourself more idly than you ought to think. Man, if we just got that one down, if the church just got that one thing down, what we would have to offer the world? It starts with humility. That humility is the prerequisite in Paul's mind for the community that we're going to read about. When everybody's got it figured out, when no one has anything to learn, how do you have Community? When you don't sense your need of another person. How do you have community? But we need each other. And so he goes on in verse 4. For as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another. The NIV translates that. Each member belongs to the other so here's paul's famous metaphor of the body and it's just describing how our lives together are meant to be and purposed to be interconnected and reciprocal so that what happens to me affects you and what happens to you affects me and i need you and you need me and just as a body has different functions my fingers don't do the same things as my toes or my nose, or my eyes. They are all important. And one, if it isn't functioning properly, affects everything else. This is a living organism. And each one of us has a part to play, he says. We don't belong to ourselves. And when we pretend to, it hurts the community, and it hurts the kingdom of God. The alternative is to serve and be served. Verse 6 Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in her generosity the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That true fellowship begins with our humble admission that we are over our heads without other people. We're in over our heads. We're not well suited to do life alone. We're not well suited to do suffering alone. And we need all the parts of the the body to do It's work. We need one another. I was on the phone with Carla this week. And we were just broken hearted over what was going on in Afghanistan. And we were praying for one another. We were talking about it. And she just said, I just needed to hear your voice. And I said, Carla, I just needed to hear your voice. Sometimes we just need to hear the voice of another Christian. And it makes all the difference in the world. We need one another. But it's not just about serving one another, it's the way that we're called to treat one another. And so that starts in verse 9. And he says, Let love be genuine. And that word genuine is just without hypocrisy. Love can't be a show. You got to love one another from the heart. He says, Abhorred. What is evil, hold fast to what is good. We have to be committed to to being ruthlessly committed, to, to ridding our lives and our community of that which does not please the Lord. It says, love one another with familial affection. That we just can't be talking about cultivating this sense of family. We need to try to live it out. He says, honor one another above yourselves. To honor someone is to recognize their their special and unique contribution to the church and to your life and to praise them for it. To appreciate and thank them and give them their due. Can you imagine what would happen if we didn't just spend our whole lives trying to get people to honor us, but if we went around just trying to honor people for what they did for us, to just say thank you. I'm so grateful, wife, for everything. I'm so grateful, Victor. I'm so grateful, Carla. Just to honor one another. That would be amazing. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, which really means to be on fire with the spirit. To be aglow with the spirit of God. Serve the Lord. So let's, man, as a community, let's stir up that inner flame of the spirit so that we don't grow drowsy as a people. But let's pour fuel on the fire and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It says rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He's just saying, y'all, you need to suffer together. You need to suffer together with a buoyancy of spirit based on our shared conviction is that Jesus Christ is coming back to mend all suffering and all pain. And you need to take that hope and you need to apply it to our wounds and trials in prayer. Hope together, persevere together, pray together. And then in verse 13, contribute to the needs of all the saints. That those who have a lot are supposed to give materially to those who don't have a lot. And as a result, we're to be a community of equity and justice. Practice hospitality. Open your home. We talked about the importance of that a couple of weeks ago to make our home an altar for the Lord, a king for the kingdom of God, to let our table be a place of healing and reconciliation and diversity and love and listening. And then in verse 14 there's this shift that happens where we where we're not no longer talking about how to conquer divisions within the church, but how To address the divide that exists outside. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That when you face cultural hostility. And it's rising right now. Can you feel it rising? We are to make our lives a graveyard for hate. It is where hate comes and dies. My life. And it is raised as forgiveness. It is raised as blessing. That's the call upon my life. Not to argue with pre-made cultural talking points that make us look like caricatures of what we are, but to be crucified in public, to be okay being wrong, or to be right and to be thought of as wrong, because blessing is the more important thing. It says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now this is something that we're supposed to do inside of our community, but notice that this is in the portion that's calling us, that's directing us on how we interact with folks on the outside. That we, if, there, if someone's mad, we want to understand why it is. We want to be able to put ourselves in our enemy's shoe. How much more beautiful and challenging is this to think about how it's directing us on how we interact with those who aren't like us and don't believe the same things that we believe? And then it just says live in harmony with one another, banish tension and dissonance in the name of Jesus all that stuff that keeps us from living in peace with our friends and with our enemies we and, and we can't let that happen without the next line which says do not be haughty or proud but associate with the lowly do not be haughty it's the only don't be proud it's the only command that's repeated twice because humility is such a prerequisite for community And without it, there's no chance. says, never be wise in your own sight. Don't make moral and social decisions all by yourself. Let us be a community of wisdom and discernment that processes life together, not on our own or not just us in the internet. We shouldn't make decisions on our own, but we should give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, because reconciliation is a two-way street, but we are called to live at peace with everyone. To be quick to repent, to apologize, to have the hard conversation, to patch up the relationship. Verse 19, beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, love your enemies. Feed them. (laughs) Clothe them. Give them what they need. Bless their socks off. Surprise them with how you just keep giving and blessing them. Outdo them in love. And then it summarizes it all in that last verse Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I just feel like when you finish this portion of Scripture, we should stand up and just applaud. Because it's so beautiful and compelling. So as we close, and I am closing, um, this is a beautiful and compelling vision of community, but it is not in any way idealistic. It is earthy, and it is honest. I want you to consider what the text assumes. If you, if you look at the 25 or so commands there, this is what they assume. They assume that there will be tension in our community. It assumes that there's interpersonal conflict. It assumes that you feel like you don't need anybody. It assumes that you're wrestling deeply with prideful and an independent spirit. And that when you get hurt, you want to hurt that person back bad. It assumes that we're stingy and that we don't want to give our stuff It assumes that we don't want to listen to other people. Um, It just assumes all this stuff is in me and in you. And it's calling the church up and out of that into this very earthy kind of love. And we're going to be talking about that for months. So for today, what I want to say is it's a lot and we don't have a hope. Unless our eyes and hearts are awake to the mercies of God. That's how he starts out the passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in light of the mercy of God, therefore do these things. In light of the mercies of God, the mercy of God that is displayed most perfectly in Jesus, we can't do these things perfectly but it's a very interesting exercise to go through and to put Jesus' name in front of all of these commands and then to think back about how Jesus fulfilled these commands for us. To go back and say, oh man, his love was so sincere. There was no hypocrisy in Christ's love at all. Jesus was so devoted to us in familial love and affection that he laid down his life for his brothers and sisters. Jesus was so joyful in hope. He was so patient in affliction, so faithful in prayer. You think about the Garden of Gethsemane, so faithful in prayer. He's the one who contributed to the needs of the saints giving us every need of our heart. He, he shared with those in need. He gave every last ounce of himself. He was the persecuted one who didn't, who didn't turn around and curse those who were cursing him, but blessed them with the offer of eternal life. It's, and it's not just that he perfectly lived these things out, it's that he loved us in this way. This is his love to you and this is his love to me. And when we see that and freshen our heart with his mercy and his grace, it's only then that we'll be able to move out and love others and see that it's worth it. We will never be able to move out in love until we see that love has moved into our neighborhood and cared for us and met us, and loved us, and saved us. And that has happened in the person of Jesus. So I just have a couple things for you to think about until next time. The first piece of application is memorize verses 9 through 21. There's not that much there. It's a wonderful thing to bring to mind and have soaking shaping your imagination for those who take me up on the offer we're just going to be reading this text every week and for those who memorize it i would love to have some of you do the scripture reading from memory so reach out to me if you take me up on it as you memorize it meditate on this list in all the ways that god has loved you in these ways to do that is a profound exercise then I just have two other things for you to think about. I want you to think about one relationship that is frayed at the ends. It can be inside the church, it can be out. What is one relationship that's frayed that in this season you can prayerfully work on? Applying these things to that situation. The last thing I'll ask us to think is this. How are you letting pride get in the way of real community? How are you letting pride get in the way of real community? We're going to be here for a while. We do it in the light of God's mercy. I'm glad to be in community with you. Let me pray that He knits our hearts together in love. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Romans chapter 12. What a beautiful and magisterial chapter this is. How challenging it is. Uh, How earthy it is. And we call upon your spirit to work among us, to feel our pride, our need of one another. To make us hungry for real community, kingdom fellowship, love and service. Ignite our hearts by your Spirit to to realize that we have gifts that other people need. Help us to build one another up in love through honor and generosity and and teaching and mercy. Just an outpouring of your Spirit and its gifts that lead to a a strong community. Help us treat one another in the church in these ways to have a sincerity about our love a familial affect for one another, Uh, to to be able to forgive one another and keep short accounts. And as it relates to those on the outside, to realize that we exist for them, to be a blessing to them, whether it's hostile out there or not, to have my life be that, to be that place where hate goes to die and what rises is the, the Christ spirit, Christ love. I want to be a part of that kind of community. We can't do it without you. And with the, so with the God of hope, with the God of love, the God of reconciling power, be with us. We pray for this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.